Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 195, and today's guest is Siobhan Dulay, CEO of Mass Challenge. Siobhan was part of the early team at Communispace, now known as C-Space, which was a big win for the Boston tech scene. The company scaled aggressively and was acquired by Omnicon in 2011. Siobhan joined Mass Challenge in 2016 as its Chief Operating Officer and was promoted to CEO last year. If you're not familiar with Mass Challenge, they are a global zero equity accelerator that was established in 2009, shortly after the financial meltdown. Needless to say, the economy was in a very tough spot and the outlook for startups was very bleak. Well, it took two visionaries, John Hawthorne and Akil Nigam, with a bold belief that they could create an accelerator that would award $1 million to startups. There were definitely some skeptics out there, including myself, but they pulled it off and the impact has been extraordinary. Mass Challenge has over 2,400 alumni startups that have raised over $6.2 billion in funding and have gone on to generate over $3 billion in revenue and create over 157,000 jobs. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Siobhan's background and how she got involved with Communispace the full life cycle story behind the growth of Communispace to its ultimate acquisition and beyond, a deep dive into the history of Mass Challenge and how the program operates, advice for founders when applying to Mass Challenge and how they decide which companies to accept, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Speaking of Mass Challenge, the organization is hosting its 2020 awards ceremony on Thursday, October 22nd. The virtual event is free to attend, and you'll see $2 million in cash prizes get awarded to startups along with some amazing speakers. Go to masschallenge.org backslash 2020 hyphen awards to register. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Siobhan. Siobhan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Kevin. Thank you. I'm really excited because we're going to talk about your background, of course, uh, your career, which has been extraordinary. And we're also going to talk a lot about uh, Mass Challenge, which you're the CEO of. And I just, you know, I, Mass Challenge has had such a massive economic impact and has done so much. And we're going to get into those specific numbers. But I, I just wanted to start off with a quick story because, you know, I remember being in Boston in 2009. Um, you know, we just, you know, got hammered with the 2008 recession, you know, Sequoia, rest in peace, good times. It was not a friendly time period that anyone remembers in 2009. And I just remember one of the founders, I'm sure both founders were out there evangelizing this idea that they were going to start this thing called mass challenge and they were going to raise a million dollars to be awarded to startups. And it was, I think originally the goal was to help spurt economic activity in, in the Boston area. And I went to one of those information sessions and I was just shaking my head in disbelief. I was just like, no way in this economic conditions are you going to be successful doing this idea. Now, obviously, it was uh, we need people like John and Akil who have these bold, aggressive ideas to help spurt what mass challenges become. So anyways, before we get into the, 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 the weeds of mass challenge, let's talk about you, um, your background. Like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Rosendale, Boston, born and bred. Uh, even though I lived different places in my life, I al always kept a foot in Boston. And what was I like? I was scrappy. Um, I'm the youngest of four kids, all girls. Oh, wow. And yeah. So, you know, I had to fight for my mashed potatoes at the table. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you know, I was scrappy. I played 
basketball, whether it was basketball, relievio, kick the can, I was always, you know, fighting hard for that sort of uh, seat at the table and to hang with the big kids. And then you went on to study at, at Boston University. So um, wh- what did you end up studying there? And like, what did you do after after undergrad? Yeah, sure. So I went to Boston University and and honestly, it was my last choice. <laughs> my financial aid forms got lost in the mail. And um, Boston University gave me a free ride. At the time, they were giving scholarships to schools, one per school in the Boston area. And I went to a Boston school. So I um, went to BU. I started out in engineering and I was the only female. So this is the late, very, very late eighties. I was the only female in this huge theater, not the only female, but the only other females were ROTC students. Mm -hmm. And it was daunting. And frankly, I'm disappointed to say I switched majors. So started out as engineering and then went to the exact opposite, political science. So I graduated with political science and business degree from BU. And at the time, it was the early 90s when I graduated and I um, had, uh, I helped open the I think my first real job out of school was helping opening the inn at Harvard in Harvard Square uh, as catering sales manager. And then I went to a company called the Forum Corporation. And that I was there for 10 years. And that's really where I grew up professionally. And I think my scrappiness came out there because I would just sign up for um, any sort of tasks. A lot of the work was project-based and I would just sign up to things whether I was qualified or not and just work harder and longer to get the opportunity. So that was, um, that, that is, was a great experience at, um, at that consulting company. And then was it Communispace where you landed next? Cause that's a tremendous story and a you know, great, great win for the Boston tech scene. Yeah, so I worked with Diane Hessen at that consulting company. She okay. was at that company, and um, it was 2000, and I was looking to different sort of e-businesses. That's what it was. they were all called at the time, and mm-hmm. I talked with Communispace, and so, yeah, I ended up being we talk about it as part of the founding team and uh, in the back of the harvest restaurant, we shared office space with a law firm um, in one of those in Harvard square. So from there to for 16 years, I was there, the roller coaster that is a startup um, that we thought we were going to exit. And during due diligence, Lehman Brothers collapsed and that got pulled off the table. And then we got acquired a few years later by Omnicom Advertising Holding Company. So, so what did Communispace do? Uh, we started off as a way for large organizations, Fortune 500s, to authentically listen to their customers in private online communities. So imagine this is the year 2000. So pre really the kickoff of Facebook, people were, um, didn't know if this would work, but we just thought if companies could authentically talk with their customers, they can get deep insights, whether it's to innovate a product, just get real information um, and, and cut through some of the, the demographic type uh, market research that they were getting. It was just impersonal and it wasn't authentic. So we tried to do something about it and 
it worked. It worked really well. <laughs> and you guys were working with major, major brands, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So um, the the list of Fortune 500s from Kraft at the time, um, Kodak, uh, major airlines, consulting companies. So a lot of um, consumer packaged good companies. Um, yeah, it was, um, we were, for a while there, we were the shiny new tool. So it was easy to get, not easy, I wouldn't say anything was easy about building a company, but we were able to target early adopters. And then one of the challenges is how do you get from early adopters to the mainstream, become a tool in the toolbox of customer insight folks? And uh, it was a lot of work, but we, we got great stories to be able to do that. And um, it expanded from there. So it was uh, double-digit growth. And I, I remember in 2009, I think our um, strategy for the year was batten down the hatches. And we grew 20%. Wow. And I attribute that to being really intentional about, you know, we were a customer focused company as well as preaching that to our, our clients. And we just talked to our customers and says, what's most important to you now? And they said, we have to uh, grow. We need to figure out how to ride through this recession with minimal, um, minimal loss. And we, grasp onto those innovators who were looking just like now. I mean, really, it's the the innovators are, are the people who are going to come out of this recession stronger. And that's what we did then. We said, this is the worst time in the world to lose focus on your customer. If you're going to invest in anything or you're going to divest, you better invest in the things that are most important to your customers and divest. If you're going to divest, like don't do those things that are important to your customers. So that's how we helped our customers through that we lost some but we gained uh gained new ones that year and it was um extremely telling the other the other lesson that i learned then that i applied this year actually is being transparent about the state of the business saying we're worried so this is where we are what can we do and sort of ask your employees get your voice voice of the employee into that and we we did that made a lot of mistakes but we did it pretty well at CommuniSpace then. And then a year later, um, I think it was 2010, that we had management conversations with over, I think, 12 potential buyers and went with Omnicom through a strategic partnerships, strategic purchase, really. Well, what's cool is, you know, it's rebranded to C-Space and it still exists today. It's still a, you know, a meaningful company in the Boston tech scene. Yeah, I, I actually... Um, led that rebrand. Um, I, uh, after Omnicom purchased us, uh, we, had a, we had a small presence, about 10, 15 people in London. They purchased another company in the same space for us and also purchased a company in China to go under this brand. And I led the rebrand effort spent a lot of time talking with our customers and they called us C-Space anyway because <laughs> CommuniSpace was a mouthful and we were expanding our services to beyond those, pri beyond those private online communities and really doing much more in innovation work. And uh, so rebranded ourselves as a customer agency and renamed it to C-Space. Now, as you highlighted, you were part of the founding team and you were there you know, through you know, the full ride, post-acquisition. So you held lots of different roles. So talk about kind of your, your career throughout that stretch. Yeah, um, we just, 
we just did everything. I mean, <laughs> you know, regardless of title, I was helping chase the uh, postal carrier for checks when we were <laughs> counting payrolls at the beginning. That's um, awesome. But really what I focused on was uh, the client. We started out thinking we were going to be um, software as a service. We thought we could create these online communities, teach our clients how to do it, and uh, go on to the next one. But that was, we found out very clearly uh, from listening to our customers that that wasn't it. Large companies have money, but not resources. So they wanted a full service offering. So that's what I led, the client services arm and built that. We started uh, as a software company supported by services to a services company enabled by technology. And that's really what I led uh, from, you know, just figuring things out as we go, always with the mind to scale. That was a big thing that I still tell entrepreneurs today is think about what you want to be and build your company that way. So if you're aspire to be a large global enterprise, start those practices now. And that's what we did at Communispace. We just built to scale all the time. Anything we did, we documented and tried to get other people to be able to do it. So what did you do after Communispace? I, ha I call it a, a rebound relationship. I spent less than a year at uh, the Gromit as uh, chief growth officer, really uh, helping them with their wholesale business and looking for new uh, lines of revenue. But it's a challenging, it's a consumer product launch platform. I was working with independent makers. So again, with that entrepreneur mindset. And, you know, one thing I didn't tell you about Communispace, about 10 years in, right around when we were talking to um, companies about a strategic purchase, I felt like I was losing my startup mojo. I felt like I was spending more time with spreadsheets and internal folks than customers. So I started uh, mentoring for Mass Challenge, this new company that just started, as you said, in 2009. Um, got addicted to that and started also mentoring for MIT Venture Mentoring Service and just got a lot of inspiration there. So I knew that no matter what I did after these 16 years at C-Space, I needed to spend time with innovators and entrepreneurs. So at the ground, I spent a lot of time with those independent makers. Um, and when I heard about Mass Challenge uh, Chief Operating Officer position, I knew I had to do it. It mm -hmm. brought everything together, entrepreneurs, uh, global. That was one thing that I missed when I did that short stint at the Gromit is that international global approach. Um, and I was just really wanted to build something big again. And uh, Mass Challenge was at the inflection point where they just went through some massive growth and were struggling with the systems to support that. It, we were doing different things in different parts of the world and we needed to find out what is common and sort of stop some of the insanity. And that's about the time I joined and I was excited to take on the challenge. Well, I already gave a little bit of um, you know, kind of the, the history, 2009 when I went to that session where they were just talking about this idea and obviously they've made it happen. And uh, so, but, but talk about kind of like, like the history of, of mass challenge and, you know, John and Akil and cause they were like strategy consultants at Bain, if I, if I remember correctly, and they made an interesting decision that, you know, they're building an accelerator, but it's, it's a nonprofit versus, you know, cash award for equity. Yeah, it was. Um, so 
as you said, we were forged in the fire of the last recession. Um, John and Akil were consultants at Bain, and they were frustrated by how their clients were looking to growth. Uh, every time, at the time when uh, large companies looked to grow, they were looking to take market share from someone else. And, and they got frustrated by that and started to think about what other way is there to, you know, drive the economy. And one of the things they thought is that entrepreneurs are the most altruistic player in the economy. Here they are, they're solving problems. They're doing so before they're making any money and actually often to the detriment of their own livelihood. So that is the, that is the start of the idea. So they decided to create a model around these entrepreneurs, actually a model that could only, nothing would be taken from them, it would only be given to them, and the funding would come from the people who benefited from these innovations, which is, you know, possibly government for economic recovery, corporations because of innovation in the industry and disruption. So that is why, and, and when I, one of my first questions when I was interviewing is why the nonprofit model, and John said, there was really no way around it. He's like, we didn't come at this thinking that this needs to be nonprofit, but when you want to create this model, it was the only one that made sense. And it's actually a, a nice differentiator for us. Uh, people don't, um, we can collaborate with everyone because we're not looking for equity from our startups. We're not competing for, um, for that piece of their company. So it really helps us to be able to play that convener and community role. Because most accelerators, what, what's, is it 6% that they usually are somewhere in that neighborhood? It, it varies. It's all over the place because there's a lot of people in the space. I think yeah. it goes up to the highest I've heard was uh, about 7 or mm-hmm. 8%, which is significant. Um, it's a massive number. <laughs> it, it is. And it depends. You know, I don't want to argue against that because sure. there is a role to play, right? And there's mm-hmm. a lot of, it's just we don't play that role. We play a different role and that's okay. And that allows us to do things like doing this at scale in our Boston program alone, we accelerate 100 startups a year, almost 400 a year around the world. So we support more startups um, because we don't have that. We need to, you know, equity is going to pay the bills. So we don't have to have a smaller cohort that is really prescriptive about um, about the interventions they take to uh, accelerate the startups. So, wow, that's so 100 companies in Boston, uh, 400 companies globally. So how do you decide which companies are accepted to the different programs? Uh, We don't decide. The community decides. That's the other cool thing about this model is that the judges for the process. So one of our core fundamental things to Mass Challenge is our high integrity judging process. So I care deeply about the process, but the judges are the community. So these are experts hundreds of experts around the world that review applications um, and then see the next round of applicants in person for judging rounds. And then um, those top ones are accepted into the program. It's always less than 10% of applicants. And it is, um, we have algorithms to say for that judge that is kind of nice and always is, gives high scores. We make adjustments for that. We look for areas of bias. Actually, one of the things we do is seek out bias in our process so that we can mitigate it. 
few years ago, um, MIT actually did a study that looked at looking for gender bias. And we found some, and we worked with them to find out what the interventions are. And at least one woman in in-person judging changes the outcomes. Uh, and so we did a massive effort around that and have done that plus other things to make sure that we could work that proven bias out of it. We had another one with Harvard this year that focused on if judges were from one geographic location and the applicants were from another, could, was there any bias there because they didn't know the market? <clears throat> and we found out that there was, but for inexperienced judges. So we're taking that into account and we're going to build interventions. So there's small biases, but we're actually seeking them out so that we can mitigate that bias. Now, once a uh, company is accepted into the program, like what's the duration of time? Is it four months? Yeah, it's for our early stage program. So we have nine programs around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, seven of those are early stage. So usually pre-seed, but as long as they have under a million dollars in annualized revenue, under a million dollars in investment, they're uh, eligible. We have two later stage programs that are challenge-based that uh, applicants in health tech or fintech apply to help corporations with their challenges. Those programs are six months long because the output of those is usually a proof of concept, sold work, strategic uh, advice from a large corporation. Our early stage programs, as you said, are four months long. So what can entrepreneurs expect throughout that four month period for the early, early stage programs? They get uh, matched with mentors that not only have expertise that they need, um, but also have an interest in helping. They get programming. And the biggest thing that I'm really excited about that we've done more systematically this year is each startup identifies what their outcomes want to be, what they need their outcomes to be for those four months. And we make sure we match them to the mentors that can help that. So it's not just by industry. If they have a specific outcome like uh, proof of concept or uh, product market fit, we match them with the mentors and experts that they uh, can uniquely help with their challenge. In addition to um, help identifying what their outcomes are, a team of mentors to support them and programming around it. They're also invited to community events where we make um, curated introductions to potential investors, potential especially partners. We have over a hundred partners globally that care about innovation. So they're not working with us just for, you know, to support a nonprofit. They're working with us to drive their innovation agenda. And they're all on different places in their innovation journey. Some just want to be exposed to different things and different technologies, and they'll help through advice and mentoring. And some want to drive their innovation agenda. So they're looking for acquisitions, mergers, and to be customers of these early innovators so that they can have competitive advantage. So this is my uh, favorite question because these stats are boldly as they should be right on your homepage. So let's talk about the economic impact. So, so what has Mass Challenge meant overall? Yeah, over the past 10 years, we have accelerated 
over 2,458 companies. And we measure the KPIs against those companies, the number of jobs they create, which is over 157,000 jobs. That is amazing. We look at their revenue. So they've generated over $3 billion in revenue. And we also look at the funding that they, um, they get because that shows that other people really believe in their success as well. And they've, they've gotten over $6.2 billion in funding. It's really exciting. And those metrics we take seriously, we put them on our homepage. It's what is on our application to be a nonprofit. Those are the metrics that we look at all the time. And that's extraordinary numbers. I mean, over the course of an 11 year history and, you know, Mass Challenge had to start up too, right? Had to get things going. Uh, Just to have that type of footprint of success is just amazing and such a a great effort from the whole team. Yeah, it's, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, we did a uh, employee survey and 95% of us, myself included, are here for the mission. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of other things that are great about working at Mass Challenge, but we're here for the mission. We get inspired by seeing these entrepreneurs succeed. So um, one of our, you know, this past week, um, I don't know if you've seen highly on, um, it was Mass Challenge 2015 is our first startup who went IPO. And wow, they, okay. yeah, yeah, it's exciting. So um, Thomas Healy is actually going to present, he was a diamond award winner. The CEO of Hylion was a diamond award winner in 2015. And he's going to present an award on October 22nd this year to one of the winners of our 2020 Boston Accelerator. And Hylion um, does electric uh, powertrains for 18 wheelers. So imagine the climate change, the impact on the climate, it's cost savings for the people who are, are tr- uh, using trucking to deliver goods and services, but it's also um, significantly in, uh, impacting um, carbon emissions. So it's, they compete with companies like Tesla and they're doing really well and, and they have some big that was big, exciting news. And they have some big contracts coming out with the likes of Wegmans and others. So that was really exciting. What are some other examples of companies that have gone through the program? Uh, so Ginkgo Bioworks, we love them in Boston, right? So mm-hmm. um, yep. synthetic biology company, uh, Flywire company who did uh, financial electronic transfers started out mainly with, with universities, but have gone beyond that. Mike Massaro, the CEO, is actually on our advisory board for our Boston program. Um, Bowie Health is one that is exciting because they're, um, they're exciting because they have done a lot of work with the Commonwealth since the COVID-19 um, pandemic struck. So they're an AI-driven digital assistant. It helps patients self-diagnose and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts use them as the first partner to help uh, residents of Massachusetts self-diagnose for COVID. So they created a pathway, AI pathway to help people self-diagnose. They're also playing a big role in contract tracing and helping organizations decide how to return to work safely. Now, you joined Mass Challenge as their COO, but you were named CEO last year. Um, this is a, this is, you know, 2020 is a challenging year on many, many fronts. 
one being a pandemic. Um, what's the experience been like running a, an accelerator during you know this challenging time? <laughs> it's been a challenging time. Uh, so John Harthorn, the, the founder and CEO, as you mentioned, um, is still on my board of directors. And he, you know, the first time I, I talked to him in March after all this stuff broke, he's, he said, I I'm sorry for what you're going through, but boy, am I glad that I decided <laughs> to leave when I did. Um, it's challenging. Yeah, I've been through, so uh, I've been, uh, was working at Communispace after September 11th. I went through the Great Recession, still at Communispace. This is the hardest time of my professional life. And not just because of the pandemic and the impact of that, but we have had like the one, two, three punch with this. So it's challenging because of the business environment. It's challenging because of um, the pressure of keeping people's jobs and the health impact. But there's also the social injustices that um, mm -hmm. we're dealing with now and trying to figure out how we can play a role in helping to create a, 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 a more equitable world and the serious role, but also the impact on our employees, our entrepreneurs um, around that, as well as the political environment globally. So we're in Israel, Switzerland, Mexico, and in three states in the US. And all of those places are dealing with all of these issues, including political uh, upheaval and challenges. So all of those together, it's, you know, the imperfect storm, I'd say, of challenges. So I'm not going to claim it's easy. <laughs> and I would imagine that, you know, because most of the companies would co-locate in your space. So there was a lot of just you know, water cooler collaboration between entrepreneurs that, you know, were not competing against each other. They were just sharing ideas and how to get things done better. Right. Well, the, the thing that was less difficult. So all of the difficulty I feel is coming from those external forces, but internally, I mean, our team is amazing. We, as I said, we came here for the mission because we love entrepreneurship. So we pivoted really quickly. We were, when um, the pandemic impacted our Israel, Israel program was in the middle of, um, they were going to do their first in-person judging session. And so they changed from in-person to virtual over a weekend and pulled it off without a hitch. We used it as the model for our, um, the rest of our programs and we decided to go completely virtual this year. We were worried because of what you said, that, that um, serendipitous connection, that density that's required for innovation. But think about our audience. We're lucky enough to have entrepreneurs who pivot in a moment. They're completely flexible and open to different ways of working. So we did it. And um, the, the um, feedback has been amazing. The last two days we had final judging for our Boston program and across the top 20 startups who presented for the final cash awards, they um, all talked about the impact that the outcomes that they had this year in spite of the virtual connections, we were just much more intentional about the connections we made for startups this year. 
Now, the Boston program, uh, the the big award ceremony is coming up. Is it uh, October 22nd, you mentioned? It's October 22nd. And one of the, so we're doing it. Um, we have a sound stage in Boston. We're doing some of it from there. We're doing it, some of it from people in different locations. We kept it to an hour. It's going to be in tense because we're it's our all of our u.s programs award ceremony usually we have you know 17 or 1800 people in the uh, boston convention center but we're celebrating all of our u.s cohorts uh, mm-hmm. ariana huffington is speaking um being interviewed by linda henry chris Denson from Innovation Crush is our MC, and it's, yeah, it's going to be exciting. So hopefully people can tune in and see some of the most amazing startups in the world. Yeah, how can people check that out? Like, is it just, do you just register and... Yeah, just register. It's free, masschallenge.org. Um, you'll probably get a pop-up when you go there to register, um, or just look under events there, and you can register and join us, please. So what do you, what do you view as like the future of mass challenge? Like I I know, you know, there's, you know, one logistical future, you're going to have a new home from what I read. Uh, But where do you see the program heading kind of longer term? Um, I am looking to use even more systematic ways to ensure that we're creating impact for every startup. So using evidence-based acceleration, looking at partnering with people like MIT, Harvard, and other academics to study our 10 years of data to see what drives better outcomes for our startups and our partners. So adding even more credibility to our results is one way I um, am looking to go, as well as making sure that we continue to focus on our total community. So our success is driven because we connect startups, experts, corporations, and communities to focus on the startup success. So as you said, we're going to have some physical space uh, in the Mass Mutual building on Fan Pier. It was donated to us because Mass Mutual is an amazing partner, and they also want to drive more innovation into their organization. So they have given us a a free floor. And while many of our startups have distributed teams, there is always a role for physical space to convene people around the community to get together to create some of those serendipitous connections, but also look for ways to bring people together around industry, around a specific challenge, um, and drive community innovation that way. Now, we already talked about the rigor of the um, selection process in terms of the judging of companies to enter the different programs. So if I'm an entrepreneur, like what advice would you give to founders on applying and hopefully, you know, being one of those companies that is, is selected? Yeah, for applications, it's not all that different from many of the competitions you see. You have to have a strong business case. It's as much about the problem you're solving as your solution to it. And you have to be able to define what your impact will be. And I'm not talking about just social impact. It's like, what what is the extent of your impact? Is it, uh, in addition to you're going to create a viable business that will last, is it you're going to impact uh, carbon emissions? Are you going to 
impact uh, clean drinking water for people who don't have it. So how big is your impact? And it's not just about target market, it's about the people who will benefit from the problem you're solving. In addition to that, it's just regular business, uh, business plan stuff. Who's your target market? How are you going to acquire them? And, and even if you're early on, it's worth applying because every application gets specific feedback from these experts. Even if you don't get in, your application is reviewed by a minimum of five experts who give you written feedback and there's a minimum amount of feedback that they can give. So you're getting input into your business, even if you don't make it into the program. Now, you've seen lots and lots of companies come through the, the program. We already gave the stat, but um, you know, running a business is super hard. There's so many different challenges, but is there like, have you noticed like a common theme of like maybe the one or two challenges that come up over and over again? You know, maybe it's um, you know, go to market or, or hiring or, you know, what, what are the common challenges that you see, you know, that are just, you know, regardless of what the company's space is focused on or their solution, like what's the common challenges that you tend to see? Yeah, I think that startups, when they first come in, they'll see, say that their challenges are talent and funding, mm -hmm. but it's not always the case. Right. Really what their challenge is, is go to market, as you said, like mm -hmm. how are they going to acquire the customers and do they know who those customers are? And the other is, uh, customer centricity. So making sure what they're building is important to someone. Sometimes entrepreneurs, um, especially ones with a really interesting technology, fall in love with the technology instead of the problem it's going to solve. And they don't keep an eye on who this problem, who has the problem to solve for and how do they make sure that they're adapting the technology to be used by that customer. So those are the things that I think most grapple with, but their stated challenges coming in is often talent and funding. And we try to help uncover what their real issue is to build their business. Uh, I think that, that entrepreneurs, the world has just taught uh, entrepreneurs that funding is the answer to everything and it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is interesting how, you know, it's a milestone, which is amazing if you raise your seed, your series A and et cetera, et cetera. But um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. It's just, it's a milestone. It's not the, we've made it, you know, there is some credibility behind it because you have other people believing in your ideas and giving you hopefully a massive sum of money, but, or in exchange for equity that, of course, but, yeah. um, but it's, it's not the end all be all. It's like the start of a new chapter. Yeah, and I get frustrated when people who bootstrap it get looked down upon for it. You know, I mm -hmm. think if, you know, maybe I'll have another startup. And if I do, I'm going to try to, I, I'm not wealthy enough to self-fund it, but I'm going to try to bootstrap and be mm -hmm. scrappy, bringing back that scrappy factor as long as possible. And, and I am amazed that people who are just beyond an idea are looking for funding. And it, and I'm not downing people who don't have the money to do it, but they're looking for more funding than they need. Take the least amount of money you need to get to your next milestone. Um, one thing that Desh Deshpande, who has been helpful for years at Mass Challenge, always said is don't try to figure out how to get gas from you know, if you're driving to San Francisco from Boston, don't try to, to tr try to drive the whole way. Just get to the next gas station. 
and then you'll gas up again. Yeah. Great I love analogy. That. I love that. That's so true. Right. Yeah. Cause there is this whole, you know, enamored outlook of, you know, just press releases and, you know, tech crunch, like, ah, oh, we got funded and it just, it is like celebrated, but yeah, it's, you know, there's uh, there's some pros and cons and there's lots of pros and amazing investors that hopefully can mentor you and help you further your business. But, um, but you know, you, you now have to answer to a board. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, um, what are three apps that you can't live without? Three apps. Um, so nothing really cutting edge. So I'm a little boring here. So I couldn't live without Waze, Twitter, um, and Venmo, really. I have two teenage kids. Um, <laughs> and my guilty pleasure app is uh, Best Fiends. What's so that? It's just a game. It's a. It's one of those. It's not Candy Crush, but it's one of those best fiends. It's addictive. It it helps me disconnect. And like uh, ways, like I don't know why, but I just can't. Like I don't know if it's the interface. I can't ever switch over. Like I've tried. Everyone's on ways. Why am I not? And I, I, I when every time I use it, I'm like, I can't. I can't. I can't do this. <laughs> Like I just go back to Google Maps. Really, it's the only way I can get anywhere. I don't even try to try to use direct. I, I don't even try to figure out where I'm going. I just do it on ways. Yeah, Always. I found it distracting, like just of all the pop-ups and different characters and stuff like that. But oh, now what about any uh, you know book recommendations, podcasts that you would recommend for entrepreneurs? Book-wise, um, one of the first ones someone sent me at. at during the pandemic was The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Ryan Halliday. And it's basically stoicism. It's just like, you know, it's don't try to get around it. Use the obstacle as the way to your next step. So it was, it was, um, it was interesting. Um, I think it's a good, good way to get a little Zen around external forces getting in your way. Um, That one, of course, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by uh, Ibram Kendi, who has started the anti-research uh, research um, department at BU. So there's that. Um, podcast, my podcast listening has gone down since the pandemic because I was a big listener in the car. But mm-hmm. yeah. um, for fun, My Favorite Murder is still uh, one, of my, one of my fun ones. And, and anything by Gimlet. Um, I also listen to you know startup ones at times um but i do most of my uh mostly reading about startups you know like brad feld came out with another startup communities book um and an article so i i tend to uh read more about entrepreneurship than i do listen yeah like my podcast listening is a little bit less too but um you know, one that I've been listening to a ton is uh, Acquired. Oh, I haven't. You haven't checked check that one out because it's, uh, the, the, it's, you know, the, the two hosts, they do deep dives. Like I'm talking two hour long episodes on founding stories of companies like Tesla and lots and lots and lots of companies, you know, TikTok and, and they just go so deep and it's a fascinating like storytelling journey that they tell. And it's not like a, it's just, it's a founder and a venture capitalist that, produce these and they're just done really well and you know it's not like a wandery or gimlet type of podcast it's like it's just their own thing but it's really well done 
Well, see, that's, I love that because I feel like, I think I tend to stay away from some of the podcasts that dig into one stories because they don't go deep enough. It, sometimes mm-hmm. it feels like it's really high level learning and it's interesting, but I can read that in a, you know, in a little snippet. Um, when I listen to something, it's something that you're not going to get if you read that emotion. And so a longer story I think would be better. I'm going to check it out. Thanks. In the episode about SpaceX, fascinating how they connect all the dots of how people came together and how, you know, they're commercializing space travel. So, Oh, that's great. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? (laughs) Well, it's different now, right? Than it was uh, (laughs) seven months ago. So seven months ago, I would, you know, do, um, would go to Broadway shows with my daughter. She's a theater geek. Mm. And, uh, that was that was really fun. Right now, you know, I try to get outside. I'm a city kid at heart, but I've tried gardening for the first time, and it's not bad. But you do all this work and get like one tomato at the end of the season, so <laughs> it's not as uh, fulfilling. But it's it's interesting and hiking. But with my son, uh, anything sports, football, baseball. We watch anime too, and. Um, uh, with my husband, I've been usually binge series with, um, you know, the boys on Amazon Prime is one of my favorites. It's uh, superheroes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a friend tell me about that recently. There's so much good TV out there. It's hard to keep, keep track of it all, but, uh, but that's one I need to check out. I can't believe how much I'm watching since the pandemic. It's just, you know, you, you don't go to, I don't have an event, you know, I have webinars, but not an event five nights a week. It's Mm -hmm. really um, weird. I'm binge watching Cobra Kai right now, which is so good. That's on my list for sure. Get the body back, Johnny. Oh, it's (laughs) perfect. And the way they bring the whole story together, it's just really well done. Um, I'm glad it ended up on Netflix because I remember seeing it on YouTube you know, red TV or whatever they call their TV service. And I'm like, Oh, I'd like to check that out, but I don't need another subscription. Absolutely, but, uh, It's, it's really well done. And I haven't gotten through season one yet. And I've heard, Oh, you gotta wait until you see the end. So there's some cliffhanger that I'm going to see at some point. So. Well, I'll be right there with you. I'm going <laughs> to check that out too. Well, Siobhan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional background and your career, all the great stuff you've been up to, plus, you know, all the amazing work to, you know, you and all the people that are part of Mass Challenge. Thanks for sharing the story. Thank you so much, Keith. Take care. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.